Welcome to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast Australia. You're with Colin Klupik. In this episode, we talk with Peter Goss from Australia's independent think tank, the Grattan Institute. The discussion centres around the 2015 NAPLAN results and the report he co-authored with Jordana Hunter, titled Targeted Teaching, How Better Use of Data Can Improve Student Learning. Whilst headline NAPLAN results have been controversial, the results from the Targeted Teaching report provide insight into a way forward. It's challenging, but compelling at the same time. Let's find out more. Peter Goss, welcome to the conversation. Great to be with you, Colin. Before we get started into the, uh, into the content about NAPLAN, perhaps you could just give us a brief overview of what your role is with the Grattan Institute. Well, certainly. Grattan Institute is an independent think tank dedicated to developing high-quality public policy for Australia's future. We're independent means that we take the perspective of the Australian public interest rather than any interest group. We try to be rigorous. We obtain the best available evidence for our our own data analysis and published work. And practical. We're really trying to articulate what governments should do to improve the lives of all Australians. I run the school education program. I have a very free reign. I've just finished up a year in that role. And my, my goal is to identify what are the big areas where public policy can actually help improve school education and given that what we want is a maximal progress for students then targeted teaching is a way of doing that. So NAPLAN 2015 would certainly be very much on your mind right now? It certainly was. It was uh, very timely. We published our report two weeks ago and then the NAPLAN results came out a week after that and NAPLAN Whilst it doesn't do everything, it provides a really invaluable snapshot of what's happening at a system level and triggers a bunch of questions, the things that we might want to understand some more. When the latest NAPLAN results came out, two of the states have shown substantial improvement. They released only the state data, of course, recently, and that, are, that is Queensland and Western Australia. They seem to have improved the average achievement levels since 2008 when the plan tests were first done and they have also seen to increase the amount of progress that students get between say year three and year nine so an indication of better learning to the extent that any standardized test only measures some aspects of learning. Other states don't seem to have shifted the dial at all and if we are happy with what the achievement levels are then that would be fine But I think that there are at least a couple of very good reasons to think that Australia should be aiming for higher achievement. One of those is the degree of social inequity in terms of students from more disadvantaged backgrounds are several years behind their peers from more advantaged backgrounds. The second one, and this shows up in international data, is it appears that we are neither supporting some of our lower achieving students nor stretching some of our higher achieving students as much as we might. So is the, is the difference between us and other nations really that big? The top nations in the PISA data, the Programme for International Student Assessment, get close to 40% of their students into the top two PISA bands. And we get in mathematics roughly half as many as that. At the lower end, we have nearly twice as many students who are not meeting the PISA minimum standards as in those top nations. So they're doing better at both the top and the bottom. And those PISA minimum standards are designed to assess are young people set up for success in life after school. 
So com- we're com- I'm comparing us to the best, um, but I think that given where Australia is as a nation, we should be aiming to compare ourselves to the best rather than to the average. And, of course, remembering that uh, those PISA results focus on some elements of learning and some core foundations, and we do want this as part of a broad, rich and deep educational approach. Now, presumably, we've been, uh, well, I should say, presumably the gap has been there for quite some time. Is it a bit of a shock recently that this has only just become apparent? I think that in the international test, um, Australia's absolute level of performance has not actually changed a whole lot. It's uh, slipped back a little bit, particularly in the mathematics area. But some other countries have gone forward a very long way. We've often, we often hear about some of the East Asian countries, and there are maybe some reasons to believe that there are, there are differences there, um, particularly in South Korea. Students seem to study an enormous amount outside school, and I'm not saying that we want that. But a country like Poland, which 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when the first PISA results came out, was a long way behind, um, is actually now performing at a higher level than Australia on a number of dimensions. So what this is suggesting is the real positive change is possible. Other countries are getting some of that, and Australia isn't getting that, despite the fact that we've had a huge focus on this for a number of years now. So let's move uh, a little bit closer to the report that was written and uh, some of the comments that were made in the press. You mentioned that in order to improve NAPLAN results, we need to improve student learning, and I think most people would broadly agree with that. What's different about the report that you have produced, and, and why would an educator want to pick that up and read it? It's a great question. The fact that improving the amount of student learning, student gain in time adds up to higher achievement by the end of school is logically true. There's nothing particularly new about or interesting about that statement, um, but it does put put the focus onto student progress. And that in some places is the focus, but in many places our judgment as to what a good school is is about the achievement that they get, which doesn't take into account the prior achievement of the students. Then saying that in order to maximise progress is um, means that we have to target teaching to every student's needs. Again, that's a very old concept. Um, and one of the quotes that I love from the report is uh, from a, a guy called David Paul Osibel in 1968. If I had to reduce all of educational psychology to just one principle, I would say this. The most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this and teach him accordingly. Mm. Now, what's interesting with that, um, and uh, you know, I hope you and your listeners will forgive me for uh, uh, not being aware of that quote until I did this research, um, but it comes from 1968, which, at the risk of giving away how old I am, was a year before I was born. <laughs> okay. So there, there's this conundrum here that we know that targeting teaching, it really matters. We Teachers face every day that there's a spread of achievement. What I think is different about the Grattan report is to highlight the differences between what we say we should be doing and what's actually happening. And when I say we should be targeting teaching or differentiating or a number of the other words, that is in AITSL's Professional Standards for Teachers and Principals. It's in the National School Improvement Tool from ACER. Mm -hmm. But it seems that in our research, it's really not happening. 
what we have tried to do in this report is to both call that out and then very practically say, what does it take to implement targeted teaching on a, in a systematic way at scale? So I'm sure there are examples of good practice, but, uh, but I and others would want to see this throughout every school and every classroom. Okay, so now we're starting to to use the term targeted teaching, which really is the the focus of the report. I just wanted to to pause on that for a moment because uh, I'm assuming that your findings have have found some way of being able to convince people that this is actually a a real concept, albeit not particularly new. How do do we convince people that this is actually something really worth considering and, and not just another popular idea that, you know, oh, this is just this is just the next thing they want us to think about? There's three parts to that. One is to link in the research evidence that says um, that in order to do targeted teaching, the types of interventions are some of the most powerful ones. So um, what we mean by targeted teaching is assess where each student is at, target the teaching in some differentiated way accordingly, track the progress over time, and then adapt practices based on the things that are having the most impact. Now, if I link that back to the research literature, then frequent formative assessment picks up the first two of those, providing feedback between from teacher to student and from student to teacher, picks up steps two and three, and then a concept um, that is called formative evaluation of programs, i.e. when I've done something, how well did it work, exactly picks up number four. And if you read Hattie or if you read Dylan William, these are interventions with very high effect sizes, and it's a way of synthesising those. So step, so so the the way that uh, people have picked it up, those that like to see that, what does the research evidence say? Um, we can link it back to well-known, proven interventions that work. The second is proof on the ground. What's the scoreboard say? And that we're earlier in the journey. But that would be saying, can we see evidence that when schools put this into place in a systematic way, that students learn more? And the evidence for that is not as strong as I'd like it to be. We don't have as strong a culture of evaluation at that program level in Australia as I think we we might hope to. But the schools that we saw that were doing this really well, and we had three case studies, were starting to shift the dial on student achievement. How did you come across those three schools? Did they just magically put their hands up or was it, or were they targeted? We spoke to a wide range of people in um, government education departments, education experts, and, uh, um, and a number of teachers through various different networks, uh, networks that we have to say which schools are really focusing on trying to track progress and use that to influence their teaching. We ended up having a solid interview discussions with about 15 schools. We went out and visited four, and the three that we profile were the ones that were putting all four steps of that cycle together the best. Did you find that there was an initial difficulty in finding schools that were willing to become a part of this? Not really. Schools were very willing to give their time and uh, and share the journey. And I think that we did two things to try and help that. Um, firstly, we don't name the schools in the report. And we said when we were talking to them that we will not name them and they, they can be anonymous and therefore they can speak openly. The second point was we made it very clear when we were writing the report 
that we would only profile schools that we thought were showing good practices because we have no interest in saying here are all the things that are wrong at an individual school level. We really wanted to find how were schools, which schools were putting together good practices and then what does it look like and feel like for the teachers and also what are the realistic challenges and barriers that they experienced along the way. Under those conditions, they were very happy to talk. So let's assume that we've got uh, some, some educators from various schools listening right now who are thinking, okay, I think I'd like to take this a little bit further. They've heard the comments, or they've sorry, they've heard the uh, the phrase targeted teaching. They've heard about evidence, and they've heard about uh, measuring data and so forth. The first recommendation of your report emphasises the importance of collecting robust data, but I suspect a lot of people might not be completely familiar with what that looks like. Can you give an example or can you explain how an educator might recognise what robust data or robust evidence actually looks like? Of course. The first point to note is that what robust evidence looks like depends on the purpose that you are trying to use it for. And in our concept of targeted teaching, there are two complementary but quite different purposes. The first of those is how do you figure out where every student is currently at in their learning in a way that can inform the teacher what does each student need to learn next and then feed into their teaching on the, in the next day, the next week, the next month. Um, by the way, that's not that we're saying there should be personalised and different lessons for every 25 or 28 students in a class, but finding a way of grouping in a way that means that the full spread is being recognised. The second use that we have is how to track progress over time so that the educators can see, are all students making progress? Are any of them stalling? And are they making enough progress? And so what what robust evidence looks like is a little bit different for each of those. Let me take the first one. What does each student need to know next? That needs to be fine-grained information Um, linked to some sort of a theory of learning. We saw the the best example was using something called the New South Wales Literacy and Numeracy Continuums that takes the various stages of learning, and they do it between the foundation year and year 10, but has much more granular descriptions in the various domains of literacy, so reading, writing, comprehension, spelling, and the various domains of numeracy has much more fine-grained descriptions than the Australian curriculum would. Teachers can then, working together, talk about what it means to be able to tick off a particular skill. So, as you will have noticed a number of times in this this discussion, Colin, the sentences don't always come out fluently, and the teacher has to judge when a student is reading, what does it mean to read a passage fluently? What does it mean to have a stumble? And when teachers talk about how do we agree on whether a student has shown they can demonstrate a skill, uh, then that's really valuable professional learning. So that's kind of the drilling into what does each student know now and what are they ready to learn next and what's the evidence that shows that. And the uh, Melbourne University, uh, amongst others, um, talk about that in terms of clinical teaching and really trying to understand and unpack the steps of learning. So robust is, in that sense is something that is um, appropriate for the students that you've got in front of you, 
um, useful and tied back to an understanding of what next. And that's going to involve a lot of teacher judgment. The second approach is really quite different in terms of how do you track progress over time. That requires an externally validated assessment process, maybe a standardised test, but also maybe some other approach, um, where maybe at a six-monthly interval or a yearly interval, you can actually plot where each student is at and then say six months later, a year later, two, three, four years later, has the student made enough progress? The two of them complement and cross-check. I'm imagining that there might be some teachers out there who are feeling quite enthusiastic about this as a, as a way forward. If a teacher was convinced that this was the way to go, what advice would you give them to get started? One of the really fascinating things that we learned during the process, um, and I hadn't necessarily expected this, was that while we saw lots of schools that were trying to put targeted teaching or whatever language they used for it into place, the, the only schools that we saw that were really putting all of the elements in were those that had external support. One of the three schools had large amounts of national partnership funding and a couple of hero teachers who had spent five or six years putting this into place. The other two schools were getting support from systems. So the first lesson is that as an individual teacher, be realistic about how far you can push this but I think that even small amounts of improving the targeted teaching is going to have benefits and also be useful to, to convince others. The, in practical terms, then the first step I think that would really help is finding a tool, an assessment tool, something like scaffolding numeracy in the middle years is one that is pretty well validated for years seven to 10, or um, some of the PAT testing um, that ACER does, and really understanding what is the spread of abilities in my classroom, and then finding a way in one area to say, how can I, at least some of the time, ensure that every student is learning at an appropriate level? A second approach that would really complement that is if you can convince another teacher to do it with you, then you both double the brain power, but if you, um, but you also have the ability of managing the spread of achievement much more effectively. And all of the schools that we profile actually used team teaching at times. Now, why does that help in a very practical sense? Well, if you've got a five, six year spread of achievement within one class and you want to do groups, then you're more likely to end up with five or six or more groups rather than three. And I know that many teachers use a group at about level, a group above and a group below. It's tough to manage five or six levels. If you add the, in the class of your neighbouring teacher, you're still going to have about five or six groups and you can split them between two adults in a way that makes it a little easier. Okay. So what I'm hearing here is that, uh, that the, the size of the task certainly shouldn't stop individuals from making inroads into that space, but look for collegiality and collaboration quickly. Very much so. And the talking out loud about how do I know where a student is at in their learning, um, do we have an agreement on that? Um, what we heard was that that was both incredible professional development um, and effective in terms of being able to change practice and sustain it. Going back to one of your earlier questions, Colin, 
This is the third reason I have to, that I think should convince educators that targeted teaching isn't just another popular idea. This is tough work. It's very professional work and it extends and challenges the skills of all the teachers that we spoke to. As teachers put this into their day-to-day -day practice, the use of data, targeting the teaching, nearly all of the teachers that we spoke to said, our job is better now. Mm. I'm pouring my heart and soul into this, but now I'm, I'm working collegially and I know whether this work that I'm doing is having an impact on my students. And even if a student stalls in their learning, I found that out quickly. And once I found that out, I can do something about it. So this, from the teacher's side, is tough, but we got a very consistent message that for the teachers, it was worth it. And on that basis, it would be worth it just by itself. I would hope so. Um, I know that teachers have many, many things that uh, they want to do um, and many demands on their time. Using data to understand your own practice once it becomes uh, once it becomes embedded um, can, I think, free up some time to continue to focus on some of their real interaction with students as well. It looks like there's a whole lot more to say about this. However, that's probably saved for another time, given the volume of, uh, of content that we'd have to get through. Peter Goss, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Colin. I would love to continue this discussion uh, with you and or some of your listeners. Great. Well, we look forward to that opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast Australia. To find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au, where you can also subscribe to the blog. Until next time, bye for now.